more than celebrities, influencers have that sense of community. They live or die on that community. Welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Benjamin. Influencer marketing is a growing segment of digital and social media ad spend. With more people, especially valuable young audiences, turning to the likes of Instagram and TikTok for their entertainment, advertisers, including and especially luxury brands, have turned to influencers to help spread their brand messaging and sell their products in more ostensibly authentic ways. But as influencer marketing matures, greater regulation of the space is likely needed to come. Influencers are regularly flagged by the Advertising Standards Authority for breaking existing codes of conduct. Working directly with independent talent can be a creative boon for sure, but also sometimes a headache for brands and advertisers. That is why some have more recently turned to using AI influencers. Yes, that's fake influencers that look like real models but aren't. Uh, If that isn't something straight out of Blade Runner, I don't know what is. To talk through these developments in the influencer marketing space, I am thrilled to be joined by Scott Guthrie, who is the Director General of the Influencer Marketing Trade Body, a professional membership organization dedicated to building a robust and sustainable future for influencer marketing. Scott, it is great to see you. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Jack, for having me on. Before we get into the nitty gritty questions about the market, I just wanted to know a little bit more about you um, in past eras, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've worked as a journalist, a media analyst, business analyst, uh, consultant, and and more. What drew you to working in the influencer marketing space and for the influencer marketing trade body specifically? Yeah, well, it's a great question, Jack. And I, I promise you this was not, not a long run up to the answer. But in 1997, I read an article by business writer Tom Peters. And in it, Peters was explaining why he thought everybody should be the owner of their own brand. Mm. Uh, and I think he came up with the phrase, the, the CEO of Me, Inc. And that really resonated with me, how you should be taking con- control, taking charge of your own brand. And of course, this is 97. This is bef- before kind of this Google is just a thing. But this is, you know, five or six years before Facebook and, and all of this, all of the social media. But it really resonated how we should have direct control of building our own networks with our employers and prospective employers, but also friends and families, and you know, without having to go through a gatekeeper. So mm. it, was, it, was a, it was a promise. You wasn't a long run up, but that was, that, that was the <laughs> nucleus uh, why I became interested in this area. Mm. And how would you describe the goal of the influencer marketing trade body for those out there that may have not heard of what you guys are doing? Well, you did it really neatly in the, in the run up yourself, Jack. Mm. Uh, you know, we we try. We're not for profit. Uh, we're a trade body, UK jurisdiction only at the moment, but with some ideas for for future development. And we're trying to, you know, develop or nurture a long-term, profitable, sustainable, robust, but professional space for the influencer marketing industry. Mm. Uh, I suppose we've got, we've got three main main functions uh, for our membership: that's re- representation, provision of information, and nurturing or fostering a sense of community for influencer marketing marketers. Mm. So, so not just, you know, uh, making sure that things are, are sustainable long-term, but also that includes, you know, having a diversity of representation in influencer marketing. For sure. But when I'm talking about representation, I, I'm really talking about how we represent our industry to other stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So we didn't realize that to to really be influential uh, in, in our space, <laughs> it's better to have one loud, unified well-considered voice. And that's what we bring. We bring that that unified voice rather than a lot of sort of dissenting voices. All of our members coalesce around the body and we speak on behalf of 
of our members, but of course on behalf of the industry. And we do that with regulators and legislators, but we're doing it here today with important stakeholders like the media, and but also trade bodies. Mm-hmm. And you added a bunch of new members this year, correct? Yeah, so we're we're brand new, you know, the new kids on the block, even though we're on the wrong side of 50. Uh, <laughs> we launched two years ago with six founding members. We're up to 22 members now. So, you know, we're, we're growing uh, at speed. So the important well the, the two takeaways from that one that people want to join so they obviously see there is a, a need for a trade body like the influencer marketing trade body but also i think more importantly everybody's renewed for the second year so they're seeing value in what we're in our proposition so perhaps the the biggest news headline in influencer marketing just in this past few weeks is this rise of AI influencers. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier, these are fake influencers. They don't actually exist. They've been created by, in many cases, talent agencies. One example is the Spanish agency, The Clueless, who use AI tools to create Aitana, a 25-year-old pink-haired quote-unquote woman from Barcelona, who, according to The Clueless, looks real enough that an unnamed human celebrity slid into her DMs to ask her out. Um, Aitana reportedly has netted the agency $11,000 in monthly revenue. As of the recording of this podcast, which is taking place in early December, Aitana has over 170,000 followers on Instagram, and I would not be surprised if that number has increased by the time this episode comes out. She, if I can call it a she? Yeah, why not? uh, Also sells racy images on FanView. That's an OnlyFans competitor to net additional income. So forgive me for being crass, but Scott, what is going on here? (laughs) I mean, this is dystopian, sounds like. I mean, it's crazy. Well, uh, right. Well, there, there's a lot of a lot to unpack there. You know, she is she. Let's say is is the there's the recent um, headline capture. Yeah, right? yeah. But it's, it's not new. Um, we've seen you know, Little Michaela. She hit uh, Instagram back in 2018 as mm. a CGI influencer created by Brood out of uh, in Los Angeles. So it's not new. You know, Shadu. Uh, the first black uh, supermodel was a CGI, was a CGI creation as well. Mm. Are they fake? I don't think they are fake. I know they, they, you know they're not counterfeit. They're not they're right. not human, but they're not imitating. They are they are fully fledged, rounded, synthetic humans. And I <laughs> and I think and I think if if Clueless is to be successful, uh, and what's her name, uh, uh, Aitana is to be successful. A lot of work has gone into her backstory. And that, I think, is also the success of Little Micaiah, back in, I said, 2018, but also successful today, is that it's true, they're not just models, but they have fully rounded narrative arcs that go behind them. I suppose that, that calls into question the real influencers' narrative arcs as well. I mean, if you can so uh, easily uh, synthetically create a version of this that isn't actually real, I mean, does that mean that real influencers are, are not doing enough to, or, or should be doing more to differentiate themselves and, and give themselves more unique uh, uh, behaviors or traits? Or, or I mean, how, how, do you, how would you work with talent that are worried about AI now take, coming in and taking some of their, their lunch money? Well, I think that I think that could be legitimate, but I think this is you know everybody's excited about this. This is a one-off. Well, not a one. This is the latest right. headline grabber, and there are only you know Clueless says they're an AI model agency, but there are only two AI models in their stable. So mm. you know we're not talking you know a colossal colossal amount. Uh, you, you said in your run-up that uh, 
Apparently, we, although we haven't seen the figures, that she makes eleven thousand dollars a month. Yeah, um, but we, we don't know that. And you know, eleven thousand dollars out of an industry that's worth thirty-two billion dollars or something this year is it, it, tiny. But is there a direction of travel? You know, possibly. What has happened in the last few years is this collapse in in cost and acquisition to create these AI. Mm. Uh, the, you know, you don't have to go in to MIT and, and get masters in machine learning. You can do it. Relative, well, cheaply, you can do it for a few thousand dollars rather than $10,000 or $20,000 that you might have had to do a few years ago. So we'll see more of those. There are ethical questions around that. Do we know that they are humans or do we know that they are virtual humans? And you mentioned again in your run-up, Jack, that this uh, actor thought that the, that she was uh, real enough for him to slide into uh, <laughs> her DMs. And that is, that is an issue, uh, whether we, you know, if we, if we get hoodwinked, uh, into thinking that a synthetic human is a human, so we need to be we need to be wary around that area. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, people have been raising flags about deep fake technology. I mean, applying this type of tech onto someone that is real and and making it seem like they're actually doing an advertisement that they haven't done. Like I think Tom Hanks was was the big one recently. Well, you know that politicians will be fast to act when it affects politicians. And that is true, and we're entering into an election year. We've got an election year in the US, election year in the UK, election year in, in, in the European Commission. If it affects, when politicians start to be the subject of deep fakes, you know that regulation will move at the, the speed of light. Mm. I, I hinted at this uh, just a bit ago, but is there concern among the influencers that you talk to, the agencies that, that you uh, represent, that the development of these types of AI could could actually take away some revenue from real influencers, just as in the conversation around AI taking jobs in practically any industry that we're having. Certainly certainly as a journalist, I, yeah. I feel that pressure. Yeah. Well, I think in Anglo-Saxon countries, certainly in the Western sort of hemisphere, we're a bit stiffy about virtual influencers. You mm. know, we, we've gra- we, we love it for the novelty. We've grabbed onto this, cl- uh, this case uh, from, from Clueless. But we're about we're a bit sniffy about them in other parts of the world in in uh, in Brazil and in in Asia in China and and in Japan uh, people go crazy consumers go crazy for them so there's a, there's a different appeal and a different way we look at authenticity depending on where we are in the world mm. uh, it doesn't look like a threat I you know the people getting excited about virtual influencers are those that say that they can control brand safety. The influencer right. will always arrive on time. They'll always be immaculately dressed. They won't put on weight or lose weight, or they won't break out with, with bad complexion or whatever. They won't. They won't uh, cause a tantrum. But you also said in, in your run-up that this—I uh, can't remember. Keep on forgetting the 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 Atada. Yeah. Um, she also has a, a, an OnlyFans OnlyFans type account as well. Right. So that introduces brand safety issues as well. Right. Right. Uh, and we, we've seen this also. I mean, we're shifting gears a little bit, but uh, Meta back in the summer uh, released its celebrity. Well, they weren't chatbots, were they? Uh, but their celebrity AI. Yeah, they are kind of chatbots, right? Like Snoop Dogg and Tom Brady. Tom Brady, yeah. you know, and Mr. Beast, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. one of the Kardashians, and, 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 Dan. But you mentioned Tom Brady. Uh, when when someone asked Tom Brady what he thought about Colin Kaepernick, he was very disparaging, or the the the, the, the AI... Uh, not Tom, but the, not, the not, chatbot that, that was based sorry, off yeah, of that's Tom the, Brady. That's the important distinction. Yeah. 
And the, the chatbot was very stiffy around uh, Colin Chapadick and why he wasn't still playing. Yeah. I saw a really good one. Someone asked him something about like the cryptocurrency collapse, basically, because yeah. Tom Brady had previously been, in real life, Tom Brady had been uh, part of the advertising for cryptocurrency companies. And <laughs> because of whatever the AI model uh, had read into it, Tom, AI Tom, uh, responded that actually crypto's uh, a really potentially great investment or something in the chatbot, which is just, I mean, it was just absolutely hilarious, but also a bit dangerous, right? And here's the, here's the issue. So we brands are encouraged to to latch on to these virtual influencers, thinking that they are, you know, brand safe. But we've seen with Atana and her, her racy uh, images, I obviously haven't seen how racy they I have not are. looked at them <laughs> myself either. But the potential, you know, depending on the brand sponsoring, you know, there's a big red flag there. And right. again, similarly, you know, Meta rolling out the, these these AI tools of celebrities. Protect, you know, Tom Brady was never uh, has never been disparaging of of, of Colin Kaepernick, mm. for example, uh, and so that can potentially damage his own brand reputation in there. So you know, it, it, it's not a, a slam dunk and protecting brands that we think it could be. Could it drive down the cost? Yeah, yeah, very possibly. But that depends on the the number of virtual influencers that are being created. Mm. You you and I have talked previously about how completely fake AI influencers, I shouldn't say fake actually, uh, or just AI influencers. Well, I question it. I mean, you can say you can say what you like, <laughs> but I think there is a more a, a existential question around what it is to be human. But we've pretty had well, time, time for that this morning. I don't know if we're going to touch but, yeah. on that. Um, I'll, go, I'll go and rewatch Blade Runner and then I'll come <laughs> back to you on, on some thoughts. Um, but that's not the only way that influencers are using AI. Yeah. Um, there are numerous instances, instances where influencers are leveraging technology to their benefit. Uh, what else are they testing out? beyond what, what Meta's doing? Like, what is Mr. Beast doing beyond his well, he, collaboration? Well, he's, he's done lots of stuff, hasn't he, recently? But, you know, he, he uses AI to uh, A-B test his thumbnails, for example, and to create mm. different versions for YouTube thumbnails, uh, to create story AI, not just Mr. Beast, but other uh, creators work with AI to come up with story ideas to help have the first draft of scripts. You know how to edit as well. How to translate uh, out of English language to uh, appeal to different parts of the world and translate into into different languages. Mm. So it, it can, you know, great use of AI can can speed up uh, and can help idea in the ideation, but also just to speed up the process to help prevent burnout for influencers. This episode of the Media Litter Podcast was edited by our production partner, Trisonic. And if you're looking for podcast production support, we highly recommend them. Find them at trisonic.co.uk. Um, just to switch gears, I know, because AI is just a small part of what's going on in, in, in influencer dumb. More broadly, how would you describe the current state of the market uh, in terms of the influencer uh, uh, market, I mean, is it really growing a lot? What, what does 2024 look like? Are, are there challenges that you guys are, are facing? Well, we're growing at speed. I mean, that, that's the headline news, I suppose. Globally, we are forecast to hit $35 billion next year. That's up from, I think, $31 billion this year. Mm. So we're already sort of twice the size we were in 2020. So growing at speed. By, Very big post-pandemic. Yeah, and and it's you know it's factious to make a, a find a positive out of a pandemic, but mm. uh, we really, as a channel, earned our spurs during that during that time as legitimate communication channel. 
carrying those important messages for the WHO and the UN, for example. But also when advertisers realised they couldn't get in front of camera talent or behind camera talent, they could turn to influencers to create broadcast-worthy uh, uh, advertisements. So we earned our spurs there. Uh, and so that's just accelerated the industry. By 2027, I think that it will be worth about $48 billion at the current trajectory. That doesn't mean it's you know it's all beer and skittles. It's not time to start popping corks yet because we know <laughs> that there is possibly uh, an economic slowdown in, in the UK next year. We know that we've already you know mentioned that next year is a is a year of uncertainty around elections in the UK and the US and, and around Europe. The, the conflict still in Ukraine and in, and in the Middle East. So you know we have to prepare. We have to hope for the for the you know plan for for the best, uh, but also plan. And understand that there might be a, a flattening off, and and how do we compete? How, what do we do there? Well, we continue to gnaw away at a, a market share from other channels, mm. which we seem to be doing. You know, we, we're growing two and a half times faster than social media, for example. But will that continue? Will we sort of take into other channels? And also, how will our content? change to reflect the cost of living, for example. We can't all be jazz hands and look at my Rolls Royce. It's got to be right. reflective of the community and what they're doing at the moment mm-hmm. or the challenges they're facing at the moment. Yeah, and that's why there's, there's, there's such a broad range of influencers that can do lots of different things. You mentioned uh, uh, during the pandemic, right, that celebrities weren't necessarily able to get in front of the camera themselves. I mean, I feel like that really normalized what being an influencer is when you have celebrities that used to be, you know, on late night talk shows instead just doing like little Instagram lives, just talking with their fans or something like that. Um, very much normalized that interaction between communities of fans and an influencer. And it makes sense that that influencers writ large sort of helped, had sort of reaped the benefits from, from the, that big change during that time period. I think so, because it was such a tumultuous time of uncertainty that we needed a sense of community. And of course, more than celebrities, influencers have that sense of community. They live or die on that community. But whereas celebrities might be broadcasting, influencers are continually listening to their community. They're looking at the data, they're adapting their future content to what what their community likes and dislikes. They're looking at the comments, they're listening to their community and uh, reflecting their future content based on that. And I think that that is where, that's another sort of hidden reason why influencer marketing or influencers really took, uh, accelerated during and post-pandemic. Mm, it's the use of data very smartly to figure out and adjust you know, on the fly basically what the audience is enjoying versus maybe what isn't resonating as much. No, 100%. And it's the community which keeps the creator honest. It mm. holds their ankles to the, or holds their heels to the fire. So they, the, it's the community that's, that says, hang on a minute, you know, you're, you've just done this brand uh, collaboration with, with, with Brand X. You don't like Brand X, right. you know, and so, you know, and they will, they will call out their, their, the creator and say, you know, this doesn't, this deal doesn't mesh with the values and beliefs and worldviews that you've been telling us that you believe in for all these years. So where's the unfollow button? You know, Right. That that connection to authenticity needs to be extended into any advertising that they're doing. I think so. But I think, you know, true creators, they get it. 
where there's been a conflation in headlines over the years is when we talk about reality reality TV stars as, mm. as influencers. Mm. And there is a difference there. You know, reality TV stars get celebrity overnight, celebrity status overnight. You know, their Instagram uh, followers go off the off the charts overnight. And then on the base on on the back of that, they kind of realize they've got six months in the sun to sell anything to anyone because they realize that there will be a sunset in their fame. Mm. Whereas, as I said, true influencers, they've they've nurtured the, the, their skills, they've nurtured their community, and they will only do what their community wants them to do because they realize that you know they live or die by their community. Mm. Mm. This is perhaps a broader question, but we're circling around. That, that this topic sort of, um, how would you gauge the, the health of the creator economy as it relates to social media more broadly? Because um, from my point of view, social media has, uh, it probably most in part thanks to influencers that are making really interesting content, um, become something more of a broadcast medium. Um, you don't have that many normal people, I'm using air quotes, posting as much uh, anymore. Um, I, I certainly don't post on social media like I used to. It used to be like a once a week thing when I was a little bit younger because everyone I knew was posting once a week. And maybe that maybe I'm just older or maybe uh, uh, from what I can tell, generally people aren't posting quite as much to everyone. Maybe they're doing DMs and sending things to, to friends more often. So without as many uh, uh, sort of standard everyday people posting, a lot of what you do see on social media is from influencers or professional content creators would you describe social media as having become a little bit more like broadcast, albeit with talent that is democratized and, and independent? Yeah, it's really interesting. I've seen a couple of headlines uh, and read, read a few stories recently that are saying that, but I haven't seen the data behind it. So it's, mm. a, it's just opinion. It's, it's a gut feel. Mm. So I don't know if how, how true it is. I do think that increasingly, going back to the word community, we have our WhatsApp groups or our Discord servers, and we do things within a community we're not necessarily sharing on on you know on open platforms as much as as we used to i have an issue with the word broadcast because i think broadcast suggests that it's it's one way communications and as we've just talked about i think the influencers are special because they live or die with their community they're the guardians of their community mm. They're continually taking the temperature of their community uh, listening looking at the data responding and producing content based on what the community likes and that isn't to me that isn't broadcast that's two-way communication that's not one-way broadcast so if there is a distinction that, that, that i think that's an important one and with that two-way comms i mean we mentioned sort of brand safety around uh ai earlier but how would you describe the state of uh, brand safety when it comes to working with just average influencers you have that two-way comms so you have an audience that's very receptive that really cares uh, from a community aspect um, obviously that that should cause the creator as you say to be a bit more careful with what they're working with but there are I'm sure also issues that can arise when a town is a little bit more independent or given the space to be more creative than be uh, strictly on message as a brand may prefer it depends what a lot of influencer marketing work is front-loaded it's mm. about the identification the selection and then the recruitment of the most appropriate influencers. So you will hope that you will do all of that work in terms of not just looking at the hard data. Are they do they have the right geolocation, the right sort of size, uh, the right gender spec? All of those sorts of really important things. But also, have they have they mentioned your brand in the past? Mm. Have they mentioned your competitor's name in the past? Do they always disclose 
their advertising. And that takes the contextual intelligence from, from, from a human to be able to do that, to, to supplement the, the hard data. So, you, you know, you, do a, you spend a lot of time making sure that there are not going to be any sort of hidden nasties when you contract. But then you also prepare for the event of hidden nasties with a contract. Mm-hmm. And whether that is a moral clause or whether that is a takedown clause, you know, or a sunset clause, uh, if it's not going right. So you, so to recap, I think you do spend a lot of time up front making sure you, they're the right sort of person in terms of hard data, but also the right values and beliefs and worldviews as you're, the brand that you're representing. But also you have safeguards through a contract. So in the event that something goes wrong, you can take down the content or... Uh, or part ways quickly. Mm. In terms of the regulatory state of things, I mean, I mentioned at the top, uh, usually when I read ASA reports, which uh, I probably I, I do more often than I than I might <laughs> like, there are often a lot of influencers that get tagged as forgetting to you know say that this was an ad or mark marked that as sponsored mm-hmm. content, um, especially compared to mediums that perhaps are have a really strict regulator that is overseeing things and being much, spending a bit more care to make sure that that type of thing doesn't happen. How would you describe the state of regulation for influencer marketing? Do you think that more needs to be done in order for the growth to continue growing and advertisers to feel really confident in using influencers as as an increasingly large part of their budget? Well, the IMTB is a member of CAP. That's the the Committee of Advertising Practice. CAP writes the ad regulation and its sister organization enforces those regulations, the sister organization being the ASA. Mm. We're the first new member in a decade and the only designated member to represent influencer marketing. So we've we've been a member since January. So that that shows that the regulators are taking this this sector seriously. And uh, we've been delighted to be invited to be part of the, the roundtable of people that that create future regulation alongside, you know, all the other uh, the other important trade bodies. This week, the ASA launched its five-year strategy, and the INTB had some serious input into where we thought we could help in, in the future and uh, um, and how we can help protect the consumer from online harms and uh, hidden advertising. So, you know, we think in the UK there is very strong and a long legacy in self-regulation through the Advertising Standards Authority and CAP. We also share a a code of conduct with ISBA, the the code of conduct, obviously the Influencer Marketing Code of Conduct, and that's very well received by government as well. So the government is looking at that. We're up to uh, iteration three. There'll be an iteration next year, and that will include a clause around kids as consumers and kids as creators as well. Mm. So in terms of regulation in the UK, I think, you know, we have decent regulation. You know, the government is, is, has its online advertising program that it's looking at at the moment. Uh, and then, as I say, we're, we're working with that with them through ISBA and this code of conduct. Other countries are, are looking at increasingly scrutinising influencer marketing. Two, two or three months ago, the FTC... Uh, the U.S.'s regulator updated its its guidelines for the first time in 14 years. France enacted a, a law in June, uh, the Inf- Influencer Act, but uh, as of last week, is already tinkering with that and is mm. trying to modify that for next year. So I think, uh, the, certainly locally, I think we in the U.K. we have a good set of rules and regulations. Um, I think that we do so in the U.S. I think they're 
possibly up for interpretation, but that's up to bodies like the Influencer Marketing Trade Body to interpret them uh, as well. Uh, but I think what we are doing and what the ASA has been doing well in the last, certainly in the last two or three years, is building the awareness of the rules and the regulations. So it's one thing having a good set of regulations, but the other thing is making sure that everyone is aware of them and then complies with them. So I think awareness has been built up considerably in the last few years. And I would hope that we've sort of reached the high watermark in terms of complaints against influencers. Hopefully they will start to diminish. But of course, the, the amount of the quantity of influencer marketing is going up and up and up and up. So proportionally, it, the the, uh, the complaints might be going down, but actually the, the numbers of complaints may may go up a little bit because of the because of the high level of of influencer advertising. Right. Sure. And I imagine as uh, advertisers and brands start to identify the the influencers that are always compliant and don't have. Uh, haven't had issues, then then you might also see that number drop just because people are working with influencers that are really professional and are taking it. No, I want to say no mistakes can happen, but they take it really seriously and, and don't get you know, flagged necessarily. Well, the ASA has you know as a ladder or a, a staircase of sanctions at its disposal. So mm. every Wednesday it will it publishes rulings against you know all advertisers and brands. And so if an influencer is flat with the law, it will, it will appear there. Repeat influencers, they go on the wall of shame. That's, right. that, that's my that's my word. That's not <laughs> what the ASA calls it. But there'll there'll be sort of there, there was a highly search engine optimized page on the ASA uh, saying that this influencer re- repeatedly flouts the rules, and and along with the rulings, there's a press release that goes out to the mainstream and, and the trade media as well. So they often get picked up uh, mm. uh, and, and reported on those rulings. So after the, the wall of shame, then on Instagram. Those that are still refused to abide by the rules will have ads placed alongside their content on Instagram saying this influencer doesn't, you know, doesn't or doesn't don't trust this influencer because they don't abide by the rules. Mm. It's very rare that you get to that that step. And only a very small handful of influencers have flouted the rules to that extent that they that they have those ads. Importantly, though, or interestingly, on the wall of shame. All but one of the influencers on that wall of shame have been TV celebrities as opposed to bona fide influencers. Oh, interesting. That goes back to our earlier point. Interesting. Just, you have time for, for, for one more question. I want to make sure I ask this question of uh, everyone that, that comes on here. We talked a little bit about your background at the start um, and that you've been working in media for a really long time. I'm curious, what makes you so passionate about media in this industry and, and why, why did, were you drawn to, to media in the first place, and why do you still love it? Well, because it's changing all the time, and I think specifically with influencer and influencer marketing, I really became involved in the area in 2016 uh, as the influencer, well, I was at Ketchum as the digital director for influencer relations back then. But it, you know, it's a different it's a different world since you know in 2013, the end of 2013, towards 2016. Uh, what keeps me interested in whether well, it's moving it's, it's moving into different areas. Um, you know what a, what an influencer was in 2016 is not what an influencer is today, and it won't be you know in five years' time. Whether everybody will be AI or to use, reuse your word, Jack, fake influencers. You know who knows, but. If influencer marketing is to succeed and to thrive, then we need to protect the consumer. Uh, and it's you know it's not just altruism; that is that's to safeguard our, our own professional and profitable future. 
So I'm really interested in the regulation and in ethics, but also you know, how brands can work more prof- professionally and, and uh, profitably with, with agencies to, to make the best of, of the sector. Mm. Well, we'll have to we'll have to leave it there, Scott. That's a, that's a lovely answer, um, and thank you so much for for joining me. It's a pleasure to talk about this. I mean, it's what an interesting space. It's it? great to meet you, Jack. We've been chatting on the phone for a, a couple of years now, yeah. so it's so nice <laughs> to finally meet you. That's that's the post pandemic in a nutshell, right there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.